you're playing for somebody who really needs what you're having to tell them. And you're getting as much from playing for them because your music is valued and needed. So we want to replicate that in other experiences we do in the community. It's because it's a string quartet, it's much more personal to the people playing. When you're in an orchestra, in some sense, you're more removed from your audience. So this is a much more, you can you can see much more the effect of what you're doing on your audience. And in that sense, it's much more rewarding. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and this podcast features my conversation with a truly remarkable woman. Her name is Penny Brill, and she is a violist with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. She also spearheaded a comprehensive effort to bring the healing power of music into hospitals and other medical facilities in western Pennsylvania. Paul and I visited Miss Brill at her home in Aspenwall, Pennsylvania, which, it so happens, is only a couple of miles from the home where my family lived when I was born back in 1950. My name is Penny Brill. I was born in Seattle, Washington, and grew up most of the time in Portland, Oregon, or Eugene. And then I came back east to college and have been in the east ever since. Uh, right now, we're in Aspenwall, Pennsylvania. I've been in this house since we were married in 1988, and I play in the Pittsburgh Symphony. In addition to playing in the Pittsburgh Symphony, I've gotten involved in a number of other projects, and we, we'll talk about that. So in your family, was there music? Well, actually, uh, my father played trumpet, but before I was born and kind of when in the very early years, he got tuberculosis and had it for two and a half years. So he had a trumpet that he sold. And so any music exposure we had was just through my mother believing that we all should be given piano lessons, dance, uh, just kind of anything exposing us to the arts. So when I was nine, I started on viola and piano. I have an identical twin who started on cello and piano, and I have a sister who's two and a half years older who started on violin. So the earliest exposure to music to some extent for us was playing instruments. Although on Sundays, I remember early on that my parents would read the newspaper and they'd be playing classical music on the radio, on the classical music station. And I also remember that our local grocery store, I think it was Safeway, had records, and along with each record was a 45 uh, record where Leonard Bernstein, uh, other people would explain some things about the classical pieces that were on the larger LP. And that actually was phenomenally important in my understanding of and beginning to get involved in and interested in classical music was through those records. When I was a young person living in Patterson, New Jersey, my mother used to take us in to the special concerts, matinee concerts that Bernstein did for kids. I forget exactly what it was called, but I mean, the whole place would be full of young people and their parents, and he would do this sort of thing, explain things. And I got to meet Aaron Copeland once and shake his hand and get a signature at one of those concerts. That's fantastic. Actually, it's kind of funny that you say that because I was auditioning for an orchestra, and it happened to be that there was going to be a concert that uh, was going to happen later on that day, and Aaron Copeland was conducting. And Aaron Copeland also conducted the youth orchestra that I was playing in in Portland. There was something called the Portland Junior Symphony, and I started playing in that when I was in seventh or eighth grade. And they had some great conductors come and conduct us, and they we did recordings. It was actually quite a big deal, and I didn't know it at the time, really. But that's how I met some of these uh, people. I think the most formative record we had in the classical music genre in our house was Appalachian Spring and Rodeo. Copeland was a big deal for my mom. 
So I don't know if she knew he'd be there that day. She must have known. Of course, I'm a kid, but uh, but I did know who he was because of listening to Appalachian Spring. We were an Irish family, very theatrical. And I'm talking about my, my brother and my cousins. And we would do these really quite elaborate plays with this classical music playing. And, and that and also Victory at Sea. The, uh, those, oh, interesting. The, the soundtrack for that uh, documentary series of films. We've played that a lot. Victory at Sea. Yeah. Yeah, it's so classic. You know, but it would have these great swelling things, you know, da 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 as you go across the ocean and there'd be the battle. And of course we'd be running up and down the stairs and fighting with swords each other. And our Fantastic. parents would all sit there with a drink in their hand, a cigarette, and you know, they were patient. They would sit there and just watch <laughs> us do this. And we of course thought we were telling the greatest epic of all time. <laughs> That's fantastic just to be able to use your imaginations while you're hearing that music. One of the things that happened to me in high school is, actually earlier than high school, I had a piano teacher who once a week had us take four people, actually, in, in our class would have theory lessons, sort of. And also, we were encouraged to compose. So I started composing music from the seventh or eighth grade. And um, I actually think that is a really important part of learning about music is composing, because then you understand from the composer's point of view, things about notation, intent, things like that, so that when you're looking at a piece of music on the page, you're making it come to life by imagining what what was the idea behind what he wrote? And then you play it differently. So what I noticed is that notation is, in effect, very primitive. So that, in fact, there's so much you pick up um, by ear that you can't possibly notate everything. So it really matters that you understand intent or try to figure it out or try to figure out from what he wrote what he was thinking possibly or she was thinking. So I found it very useful to be composing from very early on. And the theory also, in order to play a piece on the monthly recital, you had to, from memory, give an analysis of what the piece was like at a class just before that. And I thought that was really helpful, too, because you understood structure more right from the beginning. Made it easier to memorize things, too. And where were you learning about these pieces, sort of the con context of how the piece was written or what this particular composer might have been going through? Maybe the French Revolution had just ended and they were excited or depressed about that whole fact. And Well, when you think about how we got information when I was growing up, you went to the library or you heard something on the radio or you listened to these little 45s that went along with the big LP. So actually having... Uh, sort of young people's introduction to orchestral music in that way was critical because here is someone who's marveling at Brahms foreign. Look what he did here. Look what he did here. And then I'm, as a child, suddenly aware that he did that in a way that I wouldn't just hearing the piece. He's making it, he's giving you a path into the music. And I think that's still even more important than it was then, even. That's how people um, get involved and interested in classical music. They need some entry point, passageway, some way of figuring out, well, what am I hearing? Because it's so different than a lot of the other music that we hear. So tell me about your journey with the viola. First of all, that's the instrument you start with for and explain exactly why that happened, why you got the viola. Well, I have a twin sister who, uh, and an older sister, and the, my older sister played violin, and so my parents thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a string trio? And then we could also do piano trios or something like that. This is, of course, a fantasy, because that assumes that we get along, that we're playing at the same level, that we have time, all those things which are assumptions. So... That meant because my twin sister wanted to play cello, I also wanted to play cello, but I won't tell anybody that. Um, she picked cello, so that meant I picked viola. Well, not as it turns out, not too many people started on viola. And at the time, the technique books were written for violin, but they weren't yet transcribed for viola. So 
what I found is when I was practicing shifting or something, and there's a technique book where you're practicing out of first position, I didn't always know what note I was playing because in effect, I was playing in baritone clef, meaning a note that was written as a G on the page for violin sounded a fifth lower when I was playing it because I had to play it as if I were playing the violin. If that sounds complicated, it was. So there's a reason now that a lot of the technique books are, are have been transcribed for viola, but at the time, that's the best we could do. I happen to have a violin teacher when I was in high school, um, so I learned a lot of violin pieces and not a lot of viola pieces. So it happened when I went to college then, that was the first time I'd really been taught by a viola teacher who'd done a lot of recordings. His name was Ernst Walfish, and uh, he was a Romanian background, Romania. And uh, I got exposed then to the viola literature for the first time then. Um, I got exposed to a lot of orchestral music because of the Junior Symphony, which I started playing in at seventh grade. And then, as it turns out, 17 of the people who were in the youth orchestra were in my high school orchestra. So there was a lot of orchestral experience, but not solo experience. The uh, the series is all about these instruments, these stringed instruments. And I, I include the double bass in this uh, idea that there's a family of bowed instruments, and it's the violin, the viola, the cello, and the bass. So anything about the viola that uh, people would not understand because you know, it just seems like a larger violin from somebody who doesn't know anything about the viola. And uh, what do you know about it in terms of how it evolved or it was just, it was it there from the very beginning, you know, kind of coming out of the broke instruments? Well, if you look at a lot of the baroque literature, actually you go back slightly before that, there's a family of vials that are all different pitch categories and it's a family. But when you try to create that family as far as the modern what we know as the modern string instruments the double bass is it's uh has a life and a shape of its own <laughs> so you're really just talking about cello violin and viola and the viola has always been i won't say the problem child but they've been experimenting a lot with it there's no standard size because when you're trying to play the lower pitches Obviously, the bigger the instrument, the more those will resonate, but then you can't put it under your chin. So you have a tenor viola that was played sort of like a Baroque cello in the sense that it's on your lap. And then you have different sizes and shapes of viola, but actually that's where most of the innovation, you see a lot of innovation on violas because people are still wrestling with how do I get the best resonance out of the instrument and and sound and still make it playable and not killing your left arm. Because if you right now just put your left arm out straight out and then wiggled your fingers, what you feel is a lot of stress on your fingers. It's very stressful. And that's even before you push down on the strings. So if you were to do that, imagine doing that for two and a half hours or five hours, you know, the length of our rehearsals how very quickly you just kind of wear out your arm or your shoulder or your neck. <laughs> and that's what happens when people are trying to play on instruments that are too big. So we're still wrestling with that one. Um, if you blow into the air hole where the sound comes out, it's called an F hole. If you blow into that, there's a pitch. And if that pitch is lower then you'll notice that it causes certain pitches to resonate more. So my instrument has kind of a dark sound and it's a little bit lower sound because there's a lot of air space in there in part, but it's also the way that how thick the wood is. I mean, making an instrument is complicated. <laughs> but if you have an instrument that's too small, it sounds more trebly like a violin. And we want to have a distinctive sound. It has a nice rich sound, but uh, like I say, we're still wrestling around with what's the optimum size and shape to make it playable. You see a lot of older instruments by famous makers. The instruments have been cut down from the tenor viola to the what we consider more standard 
like 16 and a half inches, somewhere between 16 and a half and 17 inch body so that people can play on them today. But that, of course, destroys the original intent of the maker when they made the instrument that size and shape. So they would take uh, a restorer maker would take one of these instruments you're talking about and literally cut cut off the wood in, in terms of the shape of it and really shorten it that way. Mm-hmm. And then and cut the uh, the sides and everything. Well, the sides would, yeah. Yes, there was a particularly memorable instrument that I'm thinking of as we're talking. When I went to Juilliard, Paul Doctor, D-O-K-T-O-R, Paul Doctor was playing on an instrument that literally looked like one instrument growing out of another instrument because the arching on the outer part of the viola was kind of flat. And then out of that came this instrument with high arching so it looked very strange but that's what he played on (laughs) and i don't know why why he chose that one whatever maybe someone else can tell us that but there have been some rather odd looking instruments that come out of that cutting down process it's happened on cellos too actually some cellos yeah well let me ask you a little bit because we certainly wanted to get into this area of what you're doing with the music and with wellness and children and, and the different areas. Your uh, training, you mentioned Juilliard. So give me a sense of some of the people who really were pivotal people in terms of your own understanding of music and your ability to play this instrument. It started with my first viola teacher. One of the remarks that still stays with me is he told me that he really liked my sound. And what I got from that was he liked my voice. He felt like I had something to say. And to me, music making is about having something to say and conveying it. It could be me telling you something through my music. It can be us having a conversation through our music. But it starts fundamentally with you have to have something to say. What are you trying to say? So any style of music or Um, instrument that I hear, I want to know, what is it that you're trying to do? What are you trying to say? And I don't care what it is if you don't have anything to say. I don't want to hear it. I don't care how talented you are or anything. I care about your message. So if I understand what you're saying, and I think this is true in, in other areas, you have to live a life that generates the meaning and and the importance of what you have to say. You have to have variety. You have to have things going on in your life. That can enrich what you're saying later. But I think from the beginning, you have to feel like you have something important to say through your music. It's channeled through your music. And and for me, it was a certain level of pain (laughs) that had to come out either through singing or it had to come out somehow. So... It's kind of irrelevant where what the pain was, <laughs> but um, to some extent, sort of respecting who's still alive. <laughs> I don't want to get into that, but <laughs> uh, it meant that I started out with a purpose. Uh, the purpose might change with time, and it might mellow with time, especially as the pain got resolved. But at least... I started out with that as a priority in why I kept going. It kept me going, kept me practicing, kept me uh, wanting to perform even if I had nerves or something like that. It, it meant that I was willing to put up with whatever it took in order to keep playing. There was a drive there, and that's important. That ends up being important. And I am curious about the uh, identical twin Yes. Is there something musically that happens between identical twins? Musically? When you play with your sister. Well, actually, what happened was she she played for a while, but she didn't have the same kind of drive. She had other things she was interested in doing. She stopped piano at a certain point, kept going with cello. I actually liked the sound of the cello, so I was glad she kept playing because I, I liked that. But... We didn't really become more conscious people until we were adults or beyond. (laughs) So I don't know that we played a lot much together. We did it 
in December sometimes. We actually didn't play much together, even though the fantasy was that we would play together. We didn't actually, because our family as a family went to Mexico in December when we had a holiday. And during the summer, we were busy doing things. So um, it really didn't happen. And then here we were playing in the Junior Symphony, but she was in a different section, so we weren't really playing together. It that Yeah, it just didn't happen. I heard her practicing her cello pieces for her cello lessons, and that that did a lot for me as far as seeing what pieces were available for cello that weren't for viola. I joke about uh, some of the greatest composers, as soon as they knew they were going to compose something, viola wrote an elegy. I, I'm not sure what kind of statement that is, but if I wanted to, I could play a whole recital of Stravinsky elegy, Vuitton elegy, you know, you, you name it, elegies by all these different composers. So um, I think they heard the sound of the instrument and then wanted to write a piece that used that sound, but I just think it's funny. There were also an awful lot of second-rate composers who wrote for viola, so I ended up, and it, I think this is to some extent why people make some jokes about violas or viola literature is we steal from everybody. So I play the Bach cello suites. I play violin sonatas and partitas on viola, uh, transcribe things that were originally for another instrument. Just in order to get a much more rounded picture of the literature and a sense of what different composers do, because what the different composers ask of the player is, the techniques are quite a bit different and what you're trying to do through their pieces is is different. So it's important to learn that, learn all those different techniques and kind of a bigger vocabulary. So uh, Mozart's Symphony Concertant is wonderful. I'm very grateful for that piece, but I needed to do some Bach and uh, a lot of other composers. And so I had to borrow shamelessly and that's what we do. <laughs> So let's talk now about this work you've been doing with the symphony. It's maybe independent of the symphony. I was I'd contacted the Pittsburgh Symphony initially uh, because I had uh, heard they had this outreach program, and Pittsburgh is associated with the medical uh, world quite a bit. I mean, there's you know leading hospitals here and research that's being done. Tell me what your how you got involved in this and what you do and how the viola plays a role in that. I first uh, got interested in doing music in hospitals because of my own personal experience going through breast cancer when I was uh, diagnosed when I was 50 in 1999. So now you know how old I, I am. But uh, anyway, the uh, what I found, I was going through maybe five or six different surgeries. And after about the third one, I thought, well, let me see if using music, listening to music beforehand, uh, during, after surgery, wh whether that would make any difference. Let's just try an experiment because some of these surgeries, especially diagnosing cancer, involved a lot of fear and apprehension and anxiety. So I thought that I should try something. And as it happens, Duquesne University has had a music therapy program that was 25 years old at the time. It's still there. It's still very, it's very vibrant. And so I thought, well, why don't I contact some music therapists who were there and see what they would suggest? So someone who I'd never met, uh, but I talked to over the phone, dropped a cassette tape of music for listen to during surgery that was developed by Helen Bonney, who was a professional violinist who then, in effect, was one of the early people in developing music and music therapy related to psychological uh, effects. She was uh, very much a pioneer in the music therapy field, but also a professional violinist. And I thought that's a good fit to find out more about what she does and how she did it. Well, at any rate, she had worked out some music to listen to during surgery. So that's what I listened to. Someone dropped off some music for me and I listened to it during surgery. When you're saying this is music you're listening to during surgery, are you under anesthesia? I'm under anesthesia, but I'm listening through headphones 
and I had my own cassette player. I think it was a cassette player. By then, we might have progressed to CDs, or maybe by the next surgery, I'd progressed to CDs, so I'm a little confused. But I wanted to identify some music that would help me feel kind of held and protected or reassured before surgery because I didn't know what to expect, what they would find. And I also wanted to use the music to... Um, I imagined that I would be actively lighting up the areas where there was cancer to kind of help the surgeon find them and get rid of them all during the surgery. In other words, I had a, a picture. I imagined the surgery from start to finish, what visual images of what I wanted to have happen so that it would be the most successful that it could be. So one of those images is I could actively imagine that my muscles were kind of clearing the way to where the cancer was so that the surgeon could find all that stuff and imagine that all the the cancer cells were lit up so that they would see them and get rid of them. Okay, I've, yes, this is a fantasy, but it helped me try to figure out, okay, then knowing that that was the plan what music would I pick? Well, I needed support. So what I found is that low music like cello or um, men, male singers, especially lower male singers, lower voices, that I, that that was something that I wanted more of in whatever I was listening to. So there was an acapella group, um, Take Six, that there was a real sense of faith and belief in what they were singing and kind of an intensity that really helped me feel like I was being held up or supported or held or, and because it was voices, it made me feel like people were all around me that I wasn't doing this by myself. But then I also had some lower string music, especially Baroque because there's a lot more bass in that. I listened to a lot of that. And again, it made me feel more supported. So that was the kind of music I listened to before that particular surgery where they were um, doing some detecting of cancer cells. And, and when you approached the doctors and the, the, the staff that were going to work on it, and you told them you were going to do this, were they already familiar with this idea? or Yes, was it they were, them? and they were actually quite open to it. So then I thought, well, the particular surgery I was preparing for was a six-hour surgery. So I also wanted to try guided imagery with music, which was, again, a Helen Bonney idea. But in Pittsburgh, in this area, there's some very good guided imagery with music people. So I called up one of them, and we did an imagery session using music to kind of give me an image for the for the surgery of what would happen. And it was kind of interesting because I laid down and the the woman posed a question. I don't at the moment remember what the question was, but it was going to be answered through music. I think I was afraid of, because the surgery was going to be in my abdominal area, I was afraid of pain. So the image I came up with was that there was going to be a blanket uh, of sound or earth or something that would cover that whole area where I was afraid of the pain and that the sun would be shining down and keeping me warm. There was warmth on my face and that there were people all around me. Well, that was the image I came up with while she was playing the music. And then the, the day of the surgery came around I was not unconscious when they wheeled me into the OR. I got up on the table, laid down, and realized, wait a second, that's the image of the surgeon's light, the people who were going to operate on me all around the table, and I have this image that I can refer to, use, there, which is the image of this um, earth covering the, the area where I was in pain, so I'm not afraid. It's just I got a, a, an instant sense of recognition about, oh, yeah, that's what this is. So it seemed familiar, so I could relax. And so afterward, they commented that you were one of the most relaxed people we've ever operated on because of doing this guided imagery ahead of time. I was prepared for it and didn't wasn't worried 
because I'd gone through the whole thing and and come up with something that really helped me address it in a way that was very positive. And so so I was relaxed. My muscles were relaxed during the surgery, more than they might have been perhaps otherwise. So I thought, this is an incredible experience. Why aren't people doing this? So I started to look into well, do they do other people do this in the hospital? Where are the music therapists? Are they in the hospital? No. So then I decided, okay, I'm I know what I need to do now. <laughs> I'm going to go on a little personal campaign sort of music sit-in. So once a week, I would go in with a music therapist to Montefiore Hospital and play for transplant patients who'd been there for a long time waiting for transplants. I would go another one day a week into McGee Women's Hospital and play for in the radiation oncology waiting area for people who were about to get radiation treatments and until somebody does something about this and gets music. You know, I'm going to just try this kind of personal experiment and see how patients react and see whether anyone notices. Well, sure enough, the the person who got me in the door was, his name was Dr. Bruce Rabin. He's an immunologist and he he's also, he was in charge of the Healthy Lifestyle Program. So he's the one who got me in the door and he was able to get some documentation of asking questionnaire, you know, questionnaire kinds of things before and after. What did this do for you kind of question. He also, of course, is, um, well, his nickname is Dr. Stress. He studied stress. That was his big uh, thing. So he was able to do um, cheek swabs showing stress levels and measure, he could measure the difference. Um, so that helped to support what was happening, which was you saw right we I saw right before me people changing their attitude, their their experience in the hospital, their level of pain. You could see a lot of changes, very dramatic changes. Now, were you playing your viola? So I was playing viola. A solo and, and mostly solo, or do you- I, because I was with a music therapist. She would guide the the uh, experience, and I would support. The, they maybe sing a song together. So I would reinforce something, either the harmony or the melody of something or other. Or then I would start to play some of these Irish reels when when someone needed to do rehab, like they needed to practice their arm movements, batting a balloon back and forth in order to get more range of motion or something like that. So. In effect, I was an active observer of what the music therapists do. And even though in some sense it's not music therapy when you go in and see someone once, <laughs> it's just kind of getting to know who they are. And if you're actually doing therapy, you'd be seeing them on a regular basis. At least it gave me a way of advocating for what I saw happening. So rather quickly, the TV stations got a hold of this idea. They found out that we were doing this. And so we ended up getting a phenomenal amount of TV coverage of us doing this kind of work, which in turn made it easier to go to a foundation and say, can you fund a music therapist in these hospitals? So that ended up that we got a music therapist hired for Children's Hospital and for uh, another hospital going between Montefiore and uh, McGee Women's Hospital. That's evolved over time. Now there are two full-time music therapists at Children's Hospital, plus their interns, and there are other music therapists in other parts of the UPMC system. But I was just happy to be part of that advocacy effort because it's, it's amazing what the music is able to do for patients who were in the hospital. What happened with me using music in recovery was that I was able to get out of bed faster, start exercising and moving faster so that here, um, the, the surgery was reconstruction. So here's a 23 inch incision where they take flesh and then they transplant it to an area where I had a mastectomy. And 
in five days, I was walking three miles a day, five days after the surgery. And, <laughs> you know, the nurses are saying, we didn't, you know, can we help you? They, they were wonderful. They wanted to kind of offer some support or whatever, but I just was listening to music and it was music at first that was stay still, don't do anything, meaning uh, meditation kinds of things. Uh, uh, and there's a Shakti Yoga CD by Russell Paul, which starts out with kind of a grounding at the beginning. And in effect, that's what it was. I was just trying to stay in this very quiet zone of no motion whatsoever because at first when you're healing that can be the most important thing you do it's not move don't stretch anything don't whatever but the other effect of it was that I didn't need any kind of pain medication except for Tylenol so that of course gets your body systems going again much faster and uh that was kind of remarkable. Um, so every, I don't know, three or four hours, I needed some Tylenol, but that was about it because I was my attention was on the music. What happens is if you're in a situation laying in bed, not doing anything, no distractions, then imagine if you have absolutely no distractions, how when you feel pain, how in some sense it intensifies it because that's all you got there to, to pay attention to. But if you're distracted by something or engaged in something, then the pain is in the periphery of your awareness so that you can tolerate a much higher level of pain and not really be noticing it. So that's the, the idea. When my mother died, we were at the apartment, my wife and I, and she had, we had a hospice woman came in, but she would be there for some time, and then she would leave. And we were there. And my mother was a great fan of opera, just loved opera. And we'd go into the Met, had tickets. She always said the cheap seats, you know, third balcony kind of seats. But she, she did it. She was a school teacher. But we were playing opera on a cassette player in the room uh, when she passed away. And I was holding her hand. And there was this sense that I'm sure there was pain. And yet she did not seem to have that pain. And I think, you know, there were some medications she was on, but the music was just incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Well, so in this case, it was so dramatic that they paid attention to how the potential there. And I, of course, didn't hesitate to write about it, uh, advocate for it, uh, for use of music, that kind of thing. So... At any rate, the, the foundations funded music therapy positions, and then I started doing some presentations at Gilda's Club. It was called Gilda's Club at that time, and at various churches or synagogues, just talking about use of music for, um, to kind of get you through whatever it was, whatever issues you were dealing with. And tell me, you you had mentioned also playing for memorial services. How, did, how does that work? How does the music play a role there? Okay. Uh, at Children's Hospital, I think we've now done 16 of these memorial services where if a child dies, then the hospital for a year doesn't invite them to one of these services, but then after a year they are invited to come back to the hospital the and parents and relatives. the parents relatives anybody who is involved with or cared about the child who wants to come is invited to come back and staff members the religious service people just kind of anybody involved in the care of that child is invited to participate in this memorial service so you have a a memorial service program in which parents have an opportunity to write messages to their children or just whatever they want to in honor of their children. There are slides up on the in the front of the hall of the children uh, who they are honoring during this service. There are parents of children who have died who uh, are five or ten years out who in effect who talk during the service and in effect 
uh, show the parents what it looks like five years later. They're going through something unimaginable, but how am I going to be dealing with this? How is it going to affect me five or ten years from now? It, In some sense, it gives them an image of that. And then there's a, uh, a sibling who talks about how the death of their sibling affected them and what they're doing now. All of that stuff, everything about the service is designed to help the relatives through this particular time. The music, we start out playing music as people are coming in, sitting down, that's designed to be kind of taking you from street level energy or whatever to readiness for the service. So there's, it's kind of welcoming music. We tried different styles of music, but a lot of the choices are based on trying to find things that are welcoming, not off-putting, meaning not styles of music that somebody's going to say, I, I'm worse off hearing it than if I didn't hear it. But in addition to that, it's music that has optimism in it, a sense of that you'll get through this. So, What's the instrumentation? So we have a string quartet most of the time. The last few times we've had uh, our principal flute player play the first violin part and then uh, do an improvised piece during the meditation period. But this time she was in Australia or something, so (laughs) we had a string quartet. And the music therapists are there, the two music therapists. This I'll just tell you, give you a rundown of what happened this time because it just happened recently. There are two music therapists who were playing guitars, matched guitars, actually, as it turned out. And then the someone from the transport, emergency transport, who has a beautiful voice, she sang a song, again, during the service called Precious Child, which is Precious Child, You've Gone Too Soon. Or just the words are very moving. And uh, I actually said to her, I don't know how you managed to sing this, but it's obviously very effective. I mean, it gets at something that they're feeling. And you're, you you want to validate what they're going through, but also it, when it gets translated into music, you can revisit it anytime, but you also can put it away. So if you are allowing time to grieve, and then you that means that for at least some interval, you can pay attention to living, and then you can grieve again. And then it allows you to have more control over when it happens, but also during this time that you're grieving with other people. And that really matters because to some extent, as the the sibling put it during the service, you've left one community and now you're part of another community and that community is people who've survived this experience and here's this community and we're all going through it together and we can help support each other through this so we play this music at the beginning then the the parents at some point have to get up and uh, they they come to the front and light a candle in honor of their child that's a difficult moment so we are playing a Shokan Farewell during that time, which is from the Civil War movie. Um, it, it gives them, because it kind of pushes their emotions away a little bit, it gives them the ability to get up and actually function while they're going to, the, to light the candle. But it also puts them in a larger context of this, the Civil War thing, some other situations where you're honoring the war dead in some sense you're honoring these children and what they went through it formalizes it but it's also again something they can find later if they want to the the meditation period which happens after one of the parents has spoken about their child this time we played for a requiem one movement called pie jesu if you haven't heard that piece, you need to hear it. <laughs> it's uh, it's remarkably warm and peaceful. There's a message of you're. It's okay. This is this is happening now. We're gently putting your child to rest, and it's okay. 
And that's a really powerful message for the music. In the program, we have a list of what these pieces are, again, so someone can find them and listen to them if that will help them. So then at the end, after the service is over, as people are leaving, we play Saturday Night Waltz. Dun, da, da, dee, 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 dum. My voice is terrible, but anyway, um, that, again, gets people moving, but it's that's a very hopeful, optimistic piece. And it's also kind of a part of the Americana, you know, American music. There's some sense of, again, tying into something that's sort of universal to uh, this country, something that people may have grown up with. It's going to be familiar. Then we play Cavalleria Rusticana, uh, something from that, that, again, is very optimistic. And a lot of times, even though people are supposed to be leaving, they sit and listen to every last note. And it makes us feel like that music is helping them in a very profound way. So I've had people who play this service come back to me and say, this is the most important thing we do all year. And is this something the symphony itself is very engaged with? Yes. So this is yes. their service they're yes. offering. Yes. Um, and people who've been through that have experienced that service who can do it because some people have lost children themselves and they can't stay in emotionally distant enough. It's too much. So you have to pick people who can tolerate the the revisiting grief and for some people it's not the right time so but at any rate people who've been through that then want to be involved in more meaningful community music making because in that sense you're playing for somebody who really needs what you're having to tell them and you're getting as much from playing for them because your music is valued and needed so we want to replicate that in other experiences we do in the community. It's because it's a string quartet, it's much more personal to the people playing. When you're in an orchestra, in some sense, you're more removed from your audience. So this is a much more, you can, you can see much more the effect of what you're doing on your audience. And in that sense, it's much more rewarding because you feel effective. It makes me think about what you said in the beginning about you have to have something to say. In your case, you were saying there was some pain that you felt that you could transform through music, and that is what you're saying. This seems to make a lot of sense. Have you found that you're good at this? And your instrument and you, as you do this, it's a, you feel it's the right thing. Yeah, and I think that's why I keep going. My attitude is I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. It's the right thing. I, I believe in it. It's what I want to be doing. So other people's opinions and support is great. I really appreciate it. But uh, when I started doing this stuff outside the orchestra, and it took about 10 years before the orchestra kind of uh, took it under their wing and created a website and did all that stuff. During that time, I said, you're invited to help me, help support me in doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway, whether or not you support me. And it's at some point there was enough momentum that and an, the right people in place and the money <laughs> to actually incorporate it into the orchestra. Because in effect, we had one person full time, but a lot of other people who for a year worked on creating the website. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to create and and kind of, what's the word, populate a website with meaningful materials. So, so they, they were able to do that. And I really I do appreciate that support because it means now I've been able to go to all orchestras in other um, cities and kind of plant the seeds to get it going in other cities. And it's really gratifying to see how differently it um, develops and grows in other cities and just see that it takes someone who gets it to keep after that program until it develops into something. And now that's now happened in, in a lot of different places around the country. I think a lot about these rituals we have when someone dies. And somewhere I came across someone writing about it or talking about it. it made a lot of sense to me that what's happening is you're changing the person doesn't end 
it's not like the end of the person because they died. Their biological presence has died, but you're trying to transform them into this other status in which they will still continue to live in the community, but their relationship to community is different because they're not biologically people walking around breathing and, and doing all that, but yet they're still very much part of people's lives. And uh, I, I really think that that's a very important thing. And I think the ritual is often designed to do that, if it's done right, so the person continues to live. There's a body transformation, and then there's a... Um, there's a wave of influence of that person's life that continues to, the wave keeps going. <laughs> so you're transforming the energy that came from that person into something that will continue to live. And their influence on all the people around them continues to live and continues to transform into something positive. I love you using the word vibrate. I mean, or wave, yeah. vibration, you know, yeah. you're playing these instruments that are doing that. I mean, they're creating these these waves of sound. By the way, getting back to you talking about your mother dying and listening to opera, there's a whole school of, well, it's a school. It's called thanatology, where especially you have um, harpists and people with beautiful voices who sing next to people who are dying and play music for the people who are surrounding the person who's dying in addition to the person. So even when the person is in a coma, they're still hearing sound. It's the first sense that develops and the last one to go. So um, you, in some sense, by playing a certain kind of music that it actually gets softer and less energy to, to a certain extent, but it also gets can get higher and it can be going into meters like three, which uh, there's a sense of release about dun, 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 dun. There's a sense of release as opposed to dum, bum, 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 a march or something. When you go into three and then you gradually go into um, drones or something that's just gets fainter, but it's still in threes, there's a suggestion of release. And the person can choose to let go of their living and go and feel peaceful in doing it. Or they can let go of whatever was stopping them from healing. So there are thanatologists who've experienced someone dying like that, in some sense getting permission to let go that way, or actually waking up from their coma. So... Um, it's a wonderful, the music can be a wonderful transition to whatever comes next. But that's, I was reminded of that when you were talking about your mother. Uh, my mother listened to Mario Lanza because there was somehow a sense of love and very personal love and caring about his voice and the way he sang. And somehow that really spoke to her. So that was what allowed her to go through her last transition is listening to that. So uh, I think it can do wonderful things in all different phases of your life. I do too. I bet we could talk for hours about oh. the, the details of like how, well, just, just briefly, and then we'll have to go. Talk about this, um, this idea of how you let the person tell you what kind of music is best for them. Because, you know, the thing you want to avoid is coming in with the string quartet and you're going to play Mozart or whatever it might be and you think this is the perfect situation. But it doesn't work for that person in where they are in their lives or the music that's important to them. And I know we talked about this. So, Well, actually, um, I think learning how to play for an audience of people who come into Children's Hospital is a wonderful way to learn how to listen to your community because – all walks of life come into that hospital. So there are Amish, there are Muslim, there are Jewish, there are whatever, just you name it. There are African-American families, there are Nigerian families, there are people from Scotland. There, are <laughs> So what's appropriate? Kind of a first question to ask is, all right, what can we play for these people? What is appropriate? What will be constructive rather than they're worse off uh, than before they heard it. Well, who do you ask? 
You ask the music therapist because they're doing this every single day. It's called client-based music making. You listen to the person and what their experience has been musically, and then you respond to that. You're going into their living room. They're not coming into yours. You're not saying, here's a piece I'm going to play, whether or not it's good for you. We're saying, what experiences did you have growing up? Did you ever sing? Did you ever play an instrument? Okay, how about if we start with? So that's a completely different way of thinking about your community. And if you learn how to do that in a hospital, you can do it. You can go right outside the door of your concert hall and and know what to play for the people you run into on the street. And the, the, the answer to that is listen to them first. Find out who they are, and then you can design something that's appropriate for them. And we haven't done enough of that. So we can learn a lot from that uh, children's hospital experience. For the larger role of the orchestra. Absolutely. In a community. <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now, <laughs> is encouraging people to do that. Tell me about the work you did with the Nepalese families after the, uh, the disaster that occurred there. Well, in order to put that in a context, there was a computer uh, specialist, someone who repaired computers, who actually worked on our Mac. And I found out that he was going to do a pilot project in the um, Nepali Bhutanese community. It's actually people who are Nepali who lived in Bhutan, but then were kicked out of Bhutan because they weren't Buddhist. <laughs> so then they're left stateless. So a lot of them have ended up in little pockets of communities all around the United States. So we were getting about 2,000 a year. So he wanted to do a pilot project because a lot of these people came from villages where the, especially the older people learn never learned to read, or uh, even if they read Nepalese, I don't know whether you've ever tried to read uh, anything in a different script, but English and English numbers and letters is such a foreign idea to somebody who's never looked at it before that there's a serious problem then in adapting to this culture, to this climate. There's so many things that are unfamiliar. So the self-organized learning environment, he adapted this idea from India where someone put computers in the slums, just put a computer in various places and had someone who was kind of watching what was going on, but uh, just letting kids discover what to do and how to use it. It was as amazing. They would just ask a question like, oh, what did you, what have you found? Or what are you, what are you doing on the computer? They taught themselves. They taught themselves English. They taught themselves all kinds of things in the process of learning how to do things on the computer. So um, adopted to the the Nepalese community where in some ways you aren't teaching the kids English, you're teaching the adults who've actually had years of, they were farmers or something, and they're having to just adapt to a completely different type of life. They got... Uh, one computer for each four people, and they had uh, someone who would go in and help show them how to get started, but then just make the computers available to every four adults and then do some ask some questions every week just to kind of document their progress and what happens when you have the computers that way instead of going to classes because those people never went to a classroom. So they thought, well, learning it in their apartments would be a much more effective way of learning English. So how did the music play into this then? So um, I noticed that, noticed all these huge adjustments they had to make. And I thought, well, what can I do musically? First of all, they've been through a lot of trauma. And there's a, a, a whole group of people who deal with um, trauma through music. So we can rely on music therapists who've done that. But also, culturally, if they're familiar with sarangi and model, and those are the, the traditional Nepalese instruments, what's the closest to that in this country? So I noticed that there, uh, well, how about Appalachian fiddle music? There's um, an oral tradition there. There are families that 
passed music on through the generations and instruments, too, in a similar way to the traditional instrument players in Nepal. So let's connect those two things so that they feel like here's something they're familiar with in Nepalese music. Let's connect it to the Appalachian music that happens to be right by Pittsburgh. So in the process of hunting for that, I found out about the Mountain Music Project where some Appalachian fiddlers went and played with some of the Nepalese traditional instrumentalists. And um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating seeing that connection, but I gave that community actually a copy of that DVD so that they would see, oh yeah, this is similar to this. Oh yeah. Also, they were starting a music group using traditional instruments. And I thought, well, why don't we introduce some Western violins and things like that into it, but learn some traditional Nepalese uh, songs and drumming, things like that. Okay, so here we are. He's trying to enroll people in this project and I thought I should be there with some of, I had some of their instruments, but also some of mine. And so I had them, I met them so they would be familiar with my face, but also some of them who didn't know any English. I had a, a giant piano mat so that we could um, put letter names on some of the <laughs> of the keys so that they could at least begin to recognize some of the letters, just some any way of kind of starting a conversation. And sure enough, every single person, no matter whether they knew one word of English or not, wanted to participate. And it was a fantastic icebreaker. So um, so I, I, I kind of left it there. That's where we were in that project at the time when the uh, earthquake happened. So... Um, at Chatham University, they wanted to put on a benefit concert where the money would go with some Nepalese back to Nepal to directly help people with the earthquake recovery because they weren't trusting the what was happening through the government, so they wanted to be personally delivering it to places where they think it would thought it would do some help. So, because of this previous uh, exposure through the refugees. I was able to help with at the beginning of the concert we had we had the some people singing the Nepali uh, the national anthem and they were wearing traditional dress. Now, of course, one of the first problems is none of those people are musicians because there's a group who are musicians, you might call it a cast, and none of these people are in that cast. So none of them are musicians. So the first step is, okay, let's find this pitch <laughs> so that we're all singing on the same pitch. It was a wonderful experience, though, because everybody was just kind of enjoying, let's make up something where we can do something together that's constructive for helping Nepal. So at the beginning of the concert, we did this national anthem. Of course, my problem is there's nothing written down because it's an oral tradition. So I transcribed it from from recordings. And later on in the program, we did two Nepali folk songs. Again, I transcribed them so that I could play them on violin. And then uh, I had an ethnomusicologist whose specialty was Nepali music playing model uh, for the last piece, along with one of the Nepalis who was an engineer or something. <laughs> anyway, both of them were playing traditional drums while I played violin for a, a Nepali folk tune. And on the other one, the the Nepali ethnomusicology student played sarangi, the uh, Nepali violin, while the other person played model, and I played violin. But I had to transcribe that music. So one of the very moving things that happened after the concert was the families asked me for the music because their kids were studying violin and they wanted to be able to give this music and pass it on to their children. Because they were playing, then they could because I was able to give them copies of the music, then they could pass it on to their children. So again, I felt like this was an incredibly valuable, wonderful exchange because I gave them something that they valued. And I learned, got a great deal out of working with them So and became closer to them 
through this exchange. I love those kinds of exchanges. This is the kind of way of relating to the community that I, I want. What happened in the concert was there were a lot of Pittsburgh Symphony players doing chamber music things, but the audience had Indian, Chinese, Nepali, just people from a wide swath of the community. So they learned something because they heard these Nepali tunes. They heard, got introduced to some of the traditional instruments. So everybody grew as a result of that experience. I love that. So those are the kinds of experiences I want us to have in the community, especially with refugees. They bring incredible culture and values to us. And I want to be able to enjoy the richness that they bring to our community and in exchange help them with the transition. I think that's what what music making is about. Thank you. Absolutely. For our closing theme music, we will listen to Saturday Night Waltz, composed by Aaron Copeland and performed by the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And before we say goodbye, Here's a quote by Henry David Thoreau. When I hear music, I fear no danger. I am invulnerable. I see no foe. I am related to the earliest times and to the latest. <laughs>